This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I am Emily Fox. So recently, a couple folks here at the station found out about a band called Bam Bam. It was a Seattle-based grunge band led by a black female vocalist. And this was a band that was performing in the early 80s, before grunge was even a genre. So after hearing Bam Bam's music and learning about the band's story, a lot of us were shocked that we've never heard about the band and wonder how and why this group was basically erased from Seattle music history. So coming up on the podcast, we will hear a panel conversation led by KEXP DJ Eva Walker. She fronts the Seattle rock band The Black Tones. She'll be talking with other black Seattle musicians about their reaction to Bam Bam and what the landscape is like today for black rockers like themselves in the city. But first, Larry Meisel Jr. caught up with a few people close to Bam Bam to hear about the band's story and the life of frontwoman Tina Bell. Just a few months ago, I'm on my phone scrolling through the void, and I get a message from one of my most trusted homeboys. What do you know about Bam Bam, he asks. So I'm about to say something about Pebbles when he sends a YouTube link. He tells me that Bam Bam was in fact a band, possibly one of the, if not the, first of the Seattle grunge bands, fronted by a black woman. Hola, wait, 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 what? The video is for the song Ground Zero from 1984. How many area rock bands had an actual music video back then that weren't, you know, heart? It's clearly low budget, but it holds my attention with its green screen background, stormy gray clouds, and shots of this young four-piece band goofing off by what looks like Golden Gardens. In the performance shots, the rhythm section is locked in and bombastic guitar player effortlessly reeling off a sound that's both sludgy and shimmery. But it's Tina Bell, a petite brown-skinned sister in front that commands my attention. She's wearing a white leather jacket. Her spiky auburn hair is cropped short. Her eyes regard the camera with an icy calm, her back to the waterfront. beautiful, cool as ice, total control. Her voice is low, smoky, restrained. It's a total quintessential Seattle rock song, a grunge song. And it sounds like stuff that would come out like half a decade later. I found so little about Bam Bam online, but saw that they'd formed in 1983. I was heartbroken to find that vocalist Tina Bell had passed away in 2012. Bam Bam's brilliant guitarist, Tommy Martin, had been married to Tina. They'd had a son. But sadly, Tommy also passed away just a couple of years ago. It saddened me to discover all this, knowing I couldn't talk to them about their path. You know, I like to think I know a couple things about music, and in particular, Seattle music. I wasn't on the scene by any means, but I've seen the documentaries, read the books, heard the interviews. I've been keenly aware of a grunge industrial complex and its story's been relentlessly mined from without and within since before I was a teenager. And back then, as an awkward, unrealized black kid that loved rock before that was a thing that was really okay, and I didn't see myself reflected in a lot of places, I always looked up to the few black role models I would see that navigated that world. 
So how in the world had I never heard of Bam Bam? How did no one ever tell me about Tina Bell? I came across Bam Bam in the early 80s. There weren't a whole lot of black weirdos in Seattle. In the scene, we weren't that visible. Mm. And so Tina Bell was definitely the queen of all that. That's Om Jahari, a writer, a musician, who was born and raised in Seattle. For me personally, as a black woman, I projected myself onto her and she was someone that I wanted to become. Ohm went on to play in the Microns with Reggie Watts. She was the original singer, the beloved ACDC cover band Hell's Bells. She's in the Bad Brains cover squad Reignition. She witnessed Tina Bell's power and uniqueness firsthand. When I saw Tina, it was really like, what in the hell is going on with this greatness and looking around the room and realizing that all of these white eyes are looking at it too and wondering how how do i do that but ohm also knew as a black woman it wasn't easy she's in a city that has a predominant white population in a state with a predominant white population, you know, in scenes that are predominantly white. Ohm recalls being one of the few black faces at shows watching Bam Bam. She recalls them mostly being beloved, but certain reactions stood out. And I was hanging back uh, watching some noted celebrities that were in the room, and I watched one celebrity looking at Tina Bell doing her performance and seeing a particular type of uh, jealousy and envy directed at Tina. And it made me realize that, you know, she at that time probably had very few close allies and probably even less closer female allies because she was from this particular person seen as an obvious threat. Tina was five foot two, her power on stage is indescribable. She was a powerhouse and gorgeous. I mean, <laughs> beautiful. And she was unapologetic. Ohm says she witnessed some of the white women some of the white men in that room seeming to take Tina as a threat and not fully supporting her because of that. And so if you're operating in predominantly white spaces and you have no real accomplices or allies in your respective gender, then, um, you know, she's getting a lot of daggers thrown at her and a lot of trash talk just because people are insecure about who they are. Okay, so this sounds very familiar. It's a particular kind of difficulty existing as a black person in the great Northwest, particularly Seattle. I've always said this place does a few things really well. Coffee, rock and roll, and erasing black people. Seattle is just has long had a practice of, um, one could call it unconscious <laughs> exclusion, and some can call it conscious exclusion of black creators or black folks who are creating sound. 
Ohm points out that Jimi Hendrix himself had to leave Seattle to get his fame. Let's go back to Tina. We're talking about a woman who creates a genre of music with the band that she's in. And in that band, she's still the only, you know, black person trying to do what she's trying to do, but also trying to make sure that people don't whitewash who she is. Omen's work to try to preserve Tina Bell's legacy. She wrote a blog post about Tina a while ago and has been working with Bam Bam's former bassist, Scotty Ledgerward, a.k.a. Scotty Buttocks, on Bam Bam and Tina's Wikipedia page. Now, Scotty's been an outspoken defender of Bam Bam and Tina Bell's legacy. First impressions of Tina was absolute awe. I mean, it was like meeting a, I don't know, a classic movie star or, or royalty. Um, you know, it was a, a regality about her, but, but it was not an arrogance at all. She was very approachable, but, you know, extremely confident and absolutely overwhelmingly beautiful. She was proud of who and what she was, but, you know, she didn't want to be, uh, her being a black woman to be the primary focus of, you know, her music legacy. But uh, <laughs> fact is that a huge part of what, her, what made her music so great was because it came from the unique perspective of a black woman. But Scotty, too, saw the adversity that she faced firsthand. We had one incident in Seattle. With some... Uh, in fact, it got to be—it was one of the most horrifying things I'd ever seen. Really, she'd been uh, apparently called something and didn't appreciate it. Started swinging the microphone around and around, smashed this guy in the head, busted him open. He goes down. Tommy actually leaps off the stage with his guitar still strapped on him. And uh, by then, though, the crowd had taken him out. It was crazy as hell. But um, she didn't want to be called that and wasn't going to take it. That's the only time that ever happened, by the way, in Seattle. Was, she was adored. I mean, it was uh, not a question of, oh, isn't she a great singer? It was a question of, oh, my God, look at that singer. It was just something that, that never happened before. She was so unique and had such passion. I mean, her presence was not to be ignored. Scotty says that while Bam Bam didn't hit national fame, they still resonated mightily with their fans. The real problems wasn't from the other groups or the people on the scene, you know, the fans or anything. They adored Tina. They didn't like her. They loved her. I think it was further up the food chain where problems, uh, folks with suits, I guess, would just could not imagine that America could accept this girl, uh, even though the audience was were clearly adoring her, and that's kind of a marketing mess up there, pals. <laughs> Bam Bam had apparently been courted by local label CZ Records, but nothing seemed to have come of it. Their first recorded music is actually the first Seattle rock recorded by Chris Hanzek at the legendary Reciprocal Recordings. Bam Bam independently put out their Villains Also Wear White EP in 1984. Hanzek was quoted in Billboard saying that the next band he worked with was Green River, generally regarded as the first grunge band, who wouldn't put out their first record till 1985. There was clearly something in the water, as they say. And bands like Green River, the Melvins, and Malfunction were all up and running around the same time, as well as a handful of more straight-ahead punk bands. This isn't to necessarily insist that Bam Bam was the first grunge band, but I keep coming to this as a band that was so early on in that scene and so clearly stood out amongst those bands. Why don't people know about them? I can't help but suspect that the answer to that is something I already know and have known my whole life about this place. 
Here's Scotty again. It's just frustrating that Seattle will not acknowledge its most, one of its most accomplished daughters. That really frustrates the hell out of me. I mean, she, uh, she was an innovator with no peers, you know? Critical component to creation of the music format uh, called grunge that later forgot she even bloody existed. You know, it's not the first time a person of color helps develop a new idea and doesn't get credit for it, but it's a pretty good example of it. Right on, Scotty. Well, tell me, what do you, what do you see as Tina Bell's legacy? Her legacy? The mother of grunge, the queen of grunge town. There you go. <laughs> Another person who's been fairly vocal in their support of Tina's legacy is Bam Bam's very first drummer, Matt Cameron. He was still new to Seattle when he joined the band in 1983, but he'd moved on by 1984. He went on to help found a little group called Soundgarden, which changed his life, the lives of a lot of people worldwide. Today, he's drumming for a band called Pearl Jam. I got to ask him how he joined Bam Bam. Well, I answered a... <laughs> I answered a... A one ad in the in the rocket at the time we had this local free music publication called the rocket that's how i met uh tommy and, and tina it was around 19 i think it was 1984 late 83 something like that it's god it's so, it's so long ago <laughs> but when i took my drums over there and I, and I set up and i and i met tommy and tina and scott Beautiful little kid named TJ. Tommy and Tina had this beautiful little happy family. Matt says she was warm offstage, a great hugger, and just had an unforgettable presence on stage. Tina was one of those charismatic, gorgeous front women. She just had it. And clearly, Tina had it. Matt is obviously extremely accomplished and well-qualified to speak to her proper place in the pantheon of Seattle Rock City. He likens Tina to the iconic vocalist of legendary Seattle bands like Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam. I played in tons of bands, but then when I, I would meet these people in Seattle that were just like these kind of unicorn people like Chris and Kurt and Tina... Lanigan, like just all these like incredible singers, man. Eddie, Lane, Lane Staley. So I think Tina kind of is part of that generation that I came up with that had like some of the best uh, rock lead singers, <laughs> I'm going to say ever. Here's another thing I had to tell you. Tina and Tommy's son, TJ Martin, he grew up to be a filmmaker who won the 2011 Oscar for Best Documentary Feature for his documentary, Undefeated. And the Oscar goes to Undefeated, T.J. Martin, Dan Lindsay, and Rich Middlemass. He also picked up the 2017 Primetime Emmy for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking for his film, L.A. 92. And obviously, he had the most intimate bond with Tina and Tommy. Growing up, post-Bam Bam days... My dad would often reminisce about the band. My mom, not so much. While Tina didn't talk too much with TJ about her experience in the band, he did end up finding some letters she wrote while on tour. And she actually tells a story about 
performing a show in San Francisco. And this, she says this little punk kid started spitting at her on the stage. And my mom had experienced that same thing in Seattle. And she, without hesitation, she stopped the show, took the mic and bashed him in the head and chewed him out on stage. And the producer had to run out to the stage and tell her, hey, that's actually like a thing right now that kids have been doing right. is spitting in respect. And so right. she was like, it doesn't matter, f*** that. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it all stems from the experience, you know, in what we like to have thought was liberal Seattle, experiencing people dropping N-bombs and spitting not out of respect on her on the stage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to her credit, you know, here's this, she's five foot two, and this is the days of like those big heavy mic stands. This isn't a wireless mic. She would use that thing and wield it as a weapon and without any fear, just kind of stand her ground. Tina was tiny, but 10 feet tall on stage with a huge voice who'd learned to hold her own as the oldest girl in a set of 10 siblings in Seattle Southland. But she still had to walk through a world that was built to crush her. I imagine her frustrations had to be the kind that not even her former bandmates could fully understand since they could never experience it firsthand. She was in a scene surrounded by white punks, bemoaning an existential alienation she understood better than most. Where my mom is actually living the emotions that they are performing, right? Right. That is, she doesn't just perform that on stage. When she leaves stage, she's still a black woman who has to deal with the same maybe even worse. than the perception that she's experiencing on stage. TJ says his father was more vocal about his frustrations around the band not achieving more success and then being left out of Seattle's story. He says he kind of saw Tommy piecing it together as he looked back. What I had to discern was the difference between is is this a disgruntled artist who never found that they got their due or is what he's saying have a tremendous amount of legitimacy in terms of the racism that they experience as a band as a result of having a black woman as a lead. And, you know, the the version of systemic racism within the music industry. Let's be real, like the industry not knowing and understanding how to position them, thus looking them over. So yes, yes. it's very much him seeing a pattern of how they're dismissed that he starts to kind of put all the dots together and starts to recognize the types of things that are being said, the types of experiences that they're having at shows, the types of promises that were made in terms of, you know, because you, then you start talking to their peers and the frequency with people saying that they, you know, they opened up for so-and-so, but they blew the headlining act out of the water. You hear that kind of frequently. And then they'd get these promises to be, you remember the Rocket magazine? They'd get these promises to kind of be on the cover of the Rocket, and then those opportunities would fall through. And, you know, you start to realize it's not that it's happening once, it's happening with frequency. That was actually the beginning. And from my understanding, that was the impetus for them to go to London for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, what do you do at that point when you're trying to be honest to who you are and represent who you are, yet the world either wants to fetishize you or um, or dismiss you altogether because they don't know where to put you. They don't know where to place you. They don't know where you fit, so keep it pushing. Tina and the boys tried their best to make it happen, even moving to London in the late 80s, 
hoping to break out in Europe since they couldn't seem to get much traction in Seattle. She ended up leaving the band around 1990, and it continued without her in different forms. Tina ended up leaving performing music behind entirely. It's not that she left Bam Bam. She left music and left the scene and really, like, retracted herself to the point where, on it, I mean, to be honest, the, she was a hermit for kind of till the very end, until she passed. It's really hard to learn that she pulled away from music to that degree. Tina gave up on performing utterly. She still enjoyed her Doors, Metallica, and Sinatra records, but was totally away from the public. She literally did a 180, you know, as being someone who's up front and center, really embodying the things she feels and expressing herself on stage to the second half of her life, the second chapter of her life, doing the complete opposite and, re- and retracting. And you, I can't help but think about what other things that she was experiencing to go so far the other direction for someone who legitimately loved to perform and loved to sing, you know, and just and ran the other direction. Um, it's something I think about a lot. By this time, Tina and Tommy had split up, which meant Tina was off on her own. It's not that she retreated and just like was doing a day job here and there. She legitimately became a hermit and, you know, like lived in an assistant living, would kind of every once in a while, like volunteer at the church or she was, you know, for a while she was getting paid under the table as a janitor at a church. And she kind of lived in this, you know, low income housing, you know, where you pay like whatever you make that month, you you pay like, you know, 15% of whatever that comes in that month. By the time I hit high school, that was the state of affairs until she she passed in her 50s. Like I said earlier, I often think about what were the struggles in addition to the ones that I could kind of speculate or the ones that she did kind of talk about. Um, you know, in the, in the later days, her mental health definitely started to decline. And I think she, I, you know, she struggled with alcoholism until the very end. Um, she died of cirrhosis of the liver. Tina Bell passed away in 2012 at the age of 55. At the time, she was living in Las Vegas. A move, TJ says, was to achieve greater isolation. Because she was alone, it took a while until anyone realized she had passed away. So by the time they found her, it had been probably, I think the coroner guesstimated a couple of weeks. I think about all the ways I've seen this town, or rather people in this city, marginalize and reject Black existence and ignore and erase black excellence. Some cases, until those black folks leave or just disappear into themselves. Maybe it's an unconscious function of this place. Maybe it's intentional. Likely, it's both. Either way, heartbreakingly, there doesn't seem like a more apt example of this than Tina Bell. TJ saw this erasure of black excellence before his eyes following his mother's death. The management of the place, because they said everything was contaminated, threw out all of her belongings, like her writings, any recording stuff, any of her, like she was a writer and a poet and a vocalist, gone. They threw it out. I didn't find this out until, because they threw it out immediately. 
I didn't get the call that she'd passed until two, you know, like a week after or something yeah. like that. So when I come out there, I'm like, where's her stuff? And they're like, oh, it was contaminated. We had to throw it out. And they saved like a DVD player, a chair, and like a weird poster. That's it. So my brain can't help but take it here, but she remained, she continued to get disrespected even in death, right? There's no way someone would do that if it was like a high-rise apartment, you know, million dollar apartments, you ain't throwing out everything in someone's belonging. You know, it's hard to come to terms with that, but it also makes me realize that she was privy of that the whole time. And that came out in the music and they came out in her performance. And at a certain point it got exhausting. Tina's voice, the music of Bam Bam, needs to finally be understood properly as part of the storied history of Seattle rock music, the sound that changed the world. But Tina's story needs to be properly understood. And for the sake of this place, it's something that in some small respect needs to help change the culture of this place. For Sound and Vision, I'm Larry Mizell Jr. Vision on KEXP. I'm Eva Walker. Bam Bam was a Seattle grunge band before grunge was even a thing. And I'm now joined by a panel of Black rock musicians in Seattle, including myself, who have all just recently heard about this band. They're here to talk about their reactions to Bam Bam and why it took us so long to find out about them. So can you all introduce yourselves, your name, your music projects that you're involved in Currently, let's start with Nicole. Go for it. I'm Nicole. I play in a band called Blackens. I'm Shayna, Shayna Shepard. I uh, play in a band called Barrax. I also have a solo project called Shayna Shepard. Uh, I'm Danny, um, also a Seattle musician. Uh, I play music with my solo project, Danny Denial, and the band Darksmith, and I also um, do film projects. Is that fine? I'll find another country, another place to shed some skin. All right, well, thank you guys for being here and speaking with me about this band. I admire all of you and your work, and I've worked with all of you to some degree as well. Uh, So how I got introduced to Bam Bam was Brian Foss, who hosts Sonic Reducer on KXPR Punk Rock Show, one of the hosts of Sonic Reducer, told me about the band, reached out to them, and uh, 
they sent like a little, like a burned CD with a bunch of songs on it. And that was two years ago, right around the time uh, I got hired. So maybe about a couple months in to being the Audio Oasis host. So that was two years ago. And I'm curious uh, how and when did you all find out about Bam Bam? I know we talked about it a little bit, Nicole. Yours was a handful of years ago, I know. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious on you guys, just each individual stories, how you came across this band. I I just read an article about them like maybe five years ago. And I don't know, I didn't really look into the band as much as I should have until Shana posted about them again, which was like recently. So. Yeah, mine was similar. I, I'd heard of Bam Bam and... I think my understanding of the band was inaccurate, which I think a lot of people have an inaccurate understanding of the band and Tina's role and her impact in the band and in Seattle. So when I saw Shana posting the same article that Nicole saw, um, I was like floored by, wow, my entire understanding of this band and their legacy and this woman at the center of it was entirely wrong and basically whitewashed. And that's, that's how I got here. And the first time I heard about Bam Bam was actually from Om Jahari, who I think all of us know, and most people should know who Om is. She is like a black rock and roll star who came up seeing Tina Bell. And what was a show that my Bam Barax did where it was the first time that we ever met and she came up to me and was came up to me, snatched me up and said, you remind me of this woman, Tina Bell, you know who that is. And I was like, no, and I don't know who you are either. (laughs) (laughs) So So, as I said, I brought you all here because you are rock musicians yourselves and I've worked with you and I'm a fan of your work. I love Barracks and Shana Shepard's solo stuff. I love Blackens and I love Danny Denial and Darksmith. I love it all. And so you three were, you know, this is it. (laughs) <laughs> so I really wanted to talk to you all about it and I love that <laughs> my favorite part about the reason that you brought us together is I is like the that like it was such a great idea because all of us are black rockers that are doing the exact same thing mm-hmm. and and we mm-hmm. all have been working so individually in our worlds you know we're like totally. friends right. but yeah. we all work so individually and like the connection and like the family feeling is coming from like just being friends and also being black friends. I feel like yeah. and then it's separate that, that this also is like this thing where she was so isolated in her, her world as totally. well. She was doing right. it by herself, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's like, so there's, I had this moment of like, Whoa, Whoa, we're all doing this. We got to look at each other a little harder too. I, mean, I, I think so. I think so too. Absolutely. Eva's such a great leader. I love oh, geez. you guys. <laughs> I think that is the coolest thing about like this community is that even like five, you know, five, six years ago, feeling like the only one in the room, you know what I mean? From that feeling, even just such yeah. a short period of time to now, like, you know, when we had shows or even things like virtually like this, like you look around and there's like people like you doing things like you, but in their exactly. own way, like, you yeah. know, even just, talking to other, another black fronted band, um, uh, OB jams in Toronto. And they were like, you all live in the same city. Like, cause they know all of our like work and they're like, it's so cool. Y'all are like in the like neighborhood together. And that's <laughs> kind of amazing. And I think that like, you it said, is really yeah. amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It's, it's Can't awesome 
And also for anyone that's listening, uh, to our fellow Black Rockers that are listening, we are out here. We are out there. There's a community <laughs> of us here. We're Come here. find us. <laughs> yes. It's harder to join, ignore join us. us. Join us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I want to do one is have us, us. <laughs> one of us. One of the things that uh, I want to do is have us react to uh, some Bam Bam songs together. Um, so I picked out three songs. And let's start with the first one. So this first one is called Free Fall. And uh, yeah, let's just listen to some of it. Feel a black ends vibe in there. Really? I was thinking mm-hmm. that earlier when that I was listening to the other day. So much. Like that guitar okay. in the softer parts. I was just like, oh, that, this feels like. And then it goes in this crazy other space where it's like Clash or something. And it just completely changes wow. around. But um, I hear that too, straight That's up. really, really cool. <laughs> I also hear that Danny, Danny in there. Oh, yeah. Danny, 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 oh, I hear, yeah. I hear Danny too. Oh, that's that awesome. You too, right? Absolutely. Maybe Tina Bell is all of us. <laughs> so here, yeah. here's another oh, tune. If y'all, yeah, if y'all are down to hear some more, I mean, these are please. These are great. So here is one called Swing Set. <laughs> Listening to these songs and seeing the photos of them, the way that the way that she performed, and listening to the songs, I, I feel like in 2020, at, in shows in Seattle, <laughs> these would go off. Like people would, people would live for this. A part of me wonders, since they were doing something so different, just because it was a band like them, fronted by a black woman, I wonder if you know. I just wonder how they were received then, like in those shows, in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to get too political about it but i can't help it you know you guys know me so i mean i feel like it's crazy that they were overlooked as well i mean she this is literally the beginning of grunge music like we're hearing yeah these ideas it. happen yeah and it's like the drums the way that the the percussion of the bass like this is, gr- is the beginning of before anything so it's like obvious that they were influencing some of our favorite bands and yet mm-hmm. You know, th- this particular project is not, you know, has not yeah. broken the seal, as it were. Even it's the forgotten. other artists in the band have. But but it's her voice, you know, it's the vocal that is so aggressive and so metal. 
Right. That, you know, I think it's I mean, maybe people just weren't ready for a black woman to actually sound aggressive in that way yet. Mm. They weren't ready for that. Mm-hmm. It feels yeah. personal. Yeah, it feels personal. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's play one more. So this one's called World of Your Future. How fitting. <laughs> Here it is. You know what that vocal when this started the da 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 that kind of like vibe that just we just heard that uh-huh. reminds me of a pre like Debbie Harry sound it it sounds like Tina mm. Bell like Debbie Harry heard from Blondie heard Tina Bell was like ooh I want to yeah. sing like that mm-hmm. that's what that sounded like to me yeah um, agreed yeah, yeah. I, it really sounds like Blondie meets Tina Turner to me. Mm. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, yeah, yeah. You so, know, I, I had heard from a friend that, you know, that she actually got to was watching Tina Turner perform. It was a huge inspiration for her when oh. Tina Turner came to um, to Seattle. I can't remember exactly the story, actually, but I can hear the influence. It's like it's soul music, you know, it's mm-hmm. like soul music. Like it sounds like it's rattling around in a cage and it's like, you know, I, the, the thing is when I moved here and started doing bands and stuff, y'all were already, well, I saw, I saw a lot of Eva and I saw a lot of Danny already kind of blossoming in that black grunge vibe. And you guys being and from my perspective, five, six years ago now, pioneers of something that people around seemed so, you know, shook by like, Oh, okay, cool. It's not that, you, that we're people of color, that you're people of color doing this more so because you're in like multi, you know, multiracial environments, but it's the sounds that you're producing that are very soulful sounds that are also, you know, and that's, and that's really like why it's crazy that she's the queen of grunge, you know, but but people are still like thinking, oh, she's black. You know, like, I'm like, dude, maybe grunge music is black. I mean, maybe all music is called rap. Agreed. Uh, you know, Agreed. all music is black. <laughs> but I'm just, no, but yeah, it's like yeah. grunge is black. It <laughs> is. Know, that, is that, that would be upsetting to a lot of people, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, they, it is because they love when anytime, like you said, Shayna, when people are like pioneers again, oh, it's, it's a, a black band. And there's like this wave of more like black funded bands, and alternative music. And they always act like it's new. And I remember like when I was starting in Seattle, I, I was feeling like, oh, OK, this is like a new thing we're doing because that's what people keep saying. 
But then you look back and you're like, no, it's not. This no, is it's like, not. We've been, we've, like, you yeah. look 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Like when I first, when I first got into music, I got into, I got, I learned about Betty Davis and I got really into her story of that experience. And I really learned about the lineage of black people in spaces that were not what the mainstream culture tells them they're supposed to be in. And I think yeah. Tina Bell is another incredible example of that. And it's just like, you know, crazy to still be surprised after all, you know, all this time, but I still kind of am. I want to add on to that, Danny, um, you saying the spaces that black people are, you know, kind of being told what spaces they should be in, which reminds me of how um, my husband interviewed uh, George Clinton. And one of the things George Clinton said was, you know, we became a funk band because white rock stations wouldn't play us as a rock band. Right. And you listen wow. to uh, wow. Funkadelic and yeah, funk's in the name and they get funky, but it's really rock and roll to me. Mostly when it's I totally listen rock. to those records, totally. yeah. it's it's definitely more rock and roll. And I would classify it that more than I would funk music. But it's that whole, you know, we've got to put we've got this quota of black people in this genre. The sound being produced is coming from black people Yet we can't classify it as rock because, you know, yeah. that and, and I mean, that's happened right. on, in the early days of the Black Tones. People would describe us as everything but rock. We've gotten, you know, we got uh, blues funk. <laughs> we got a world. The only rock one we got was world rock. Right. I was like, that's Yanni. That's what? not, that's not the Black Tones. <laughs> and um, oh my God. I mean, we've gotten I mean, it was people were dancing around. Just saying we were a rock band. And then I don't know when they were, they were trying to avoid it so hard. Yeah. And I don't know when it finally turned. They were like, they're a rock band. <laughs> they're a rock and roll band. I think it's probably so, after it's saying so amazing it. to me how people it's crazy to me how people in the music industry just try to box all of us into these things all the time. Oh, yeah. It's like it's yeah. like, like you can't be. I'm sure we all have that. Like you can't. Mm-hmm. Rare X can't be a rock band, a grunge band. We have to be a soul grunge band. Yes. You know, Shana, you know we, have, we have had many conversations. I've had many conversations with well, Shayna and people calling yeah. Shayna. She's a soul vocalist. I'm like, Shayna is a rock vocalist. Seattle she is a singer. rock vocalist. She is like, a rock and roll singer. I've Zeppelin my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I am speaking with musicians Danny Denial, Shayna Shepard, and Nicole Swims. Shayna of Barrax, Nicole Swims of Black Ants, and Danny of Danny Denial and Darksmith. And uh, Danny, you mentioned that Tina's story was whitewashed. So can you tell us more why you believe her story was whitewashed? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what really enraged me about like going through the oral history of what we can we can all gather about um, Bam Bam and Tina's <laughs> Tina story was just the way that they weren't a given the credit where credit was due and she wasn't given that credit where credit was due. And it felt like like we mentioned earlier, there were just a lot of things that um happened from a place of revisionism you know of well this was her time in the band but we're not going to acknowledge that that was a lot of the the most impacting um most culturally kind of significant um works were the ones that she fronted um and i feel like there's a there's a common thread that that happens 
where pre-internet, a lot of things that people didn't kind of take on and champion and the people that weren't necessarily the Pearl Jams or, you know, the Allison Chains just sort of get forgotten and people pass it on orally and, and decide which parts they want to keep and which parts they want to discard. And the fact that there was this formidable, formative and influential like proto grunge band with Tina Bell as the front woman just getting kind of written down, you can't not take that personally, you mm-hmm. know, like it feels yeah. it feels like a personal slight of like, as a culture, that generation decided that that band story was not part of the canon. Like yeah. we're just going mm-hmm. to this over here and, and that's not okay. Absolutely. And, and how often do you guys think black artists are erased? For example, and this happened quite a lot in the day with, uh, black rock bands and black rock musicians is that, you know, they were being told that, you know, we have our, our, our black rock band or we have our black musicians. It's one of those things where they're looking at qual- uh, quantity and not quality. Right. So they're, yeah. they're, we have our quota of black people sign or black yeah. rock musicians sign. Whereas these white musicians, I mean, there can be hundreds and hundreds of them. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but with us, it's like, well, you know, if it's too much the same, if we sign two black rock bands, that's just, that's just way too much. And so I want to know, um, how often do you think black artists are being erased? Because I mean, that's the thing, uh, Emily and I have talked about, you know, uh, backup singers who, uh, black backup singers in particular who could have launched solo careers, but it's like, oh, but you sound like Aretha Franklin. There's already an Aretha Franklin, you know? Mm. Um, whereas yeah. I don't know how many Kate Bushes I've heard personally and how many, exactly. uh, I mean, I've I heard, mean, I can, I mean, I've heard a ton of Nora Joneses and I mean, the, it goes on, but I mean, I, I would love to have 80,000 Aretha Franklins if I'm being Same, honest with yeah. you. Right. Yeah. I would love that. I mean, I would definitely say that when I first started, I felt incredible pressure to be competitive with other Black artists when I started oh, in music, me too. especially here. And I think right. that when we didn't do that, and that's like a credit, honestly, to like, I got to say to Eva, to Whitney Maje, to other Black artists that had oh. kind of had some more success, that they said, no, we're not going to just do what has happened for, you know, many, many decades here where there is only one black artist or one blah, blah, blah. And then we never see them again because they went to Los Angeles or whatever. We're going to acknowledge that you are here and just support you. And if I, if we were just going to like, like your music and share it with our thing and do shows with you. And I think that when, from my perspective, I felt that that competition was being really pressured into me by, you know, other white artists Mm. that I was working with because they were doing the comparative thing. And then we have a conversation Mm -hmm. about, you know, you know, the, you know, racism itself and how Mm -hmm. that can kind of sneak into every aspect of what we do with our day-to-day lives. People don't even notice they're doing it is what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. But that internalized pressure makes me look at other artists and have feel distance from them. And like what that what's happened, I think over the past couple of years, especially is we've kind of retaken that narrative and created community so that that can't happen as much. But, and me and Eva was talking about that this about the other day, where every now I feel like there's a thing where people are expecting us to be a limp, a lumped unit. Mm-hmm. They want all of us black artists to be like, okay, now we have black artists, you know, mm-hmm. and there's now yeah, like, yeah. how can we actually have like 
music integration with beyond image and the way that we look and just the record itself and with other bands they like because then we're not even competing with other bands we're only still competing with ourselves with each other yeah with each other and that's like i don't think that that we're creating that i think that the music industry that we're living in right now is creating that and then, then you say like erasure erasure that you know that we were talking about before like when that's the case there will only still be one or two of us that create something that's more successful and get there so i feel like we're in this new kind of battle and some in some days it feels like a battle where i'm not fighting for relevancy i'm fighting to just be for me and all of the people that i am making music with that are in my sphere that happen to be people of color now okay we just want to eat at the same table as everybody else absolutely that's a very great point booster seat (laughs) (laughs) absolutely that's a really great point and uh i want to ask what do you all find from each of you uh and you all can decide who goes first but what do you find most fascinating about bam Bam's story nicole let's start with you um i just feel like just everything that tina bell is or was she just she put everything into her music and just it's a shame that people ignored that and whitewashed it and took that away from her took her legacy away and just now finding out about all the great things she's done i just um i don't know i feel like she really left a a big legacy and uh, i feel like i don't know more people need to know about her story so yeah yeah yeah, I, I feel like for me, it's like legacy and respect and, um, and and credit, for lack of a better word, are really important things, I think, for an artist, at least it, it is for me. And I think that the idea of, you know, knowing what it's like to be kind of green and not really having a lot of like connections or people, you know, when, you, when you're starting out in a senior community, you know, I, I know what it's like to feel like you're fighting for what Shane mentioned, that seat at the table, you know, and you're like fighting feels like harder than everybody else a little bit because people are sort of mm-hmm. a little bit different. And I know that I, I felt that a lot in Seattle, like, you know, y- years ago. And, and then I felt like once I got a seat or something, whether that's like, you know, some kind of credibility or attention or something, I felt like then there was this kind of uh, different kind of back talking where it was like, I know a peer of mine, a white peer of mine made a comment to me when like one of my first, like, small successes of something of, okay, things are happening. And it was like, well, it's a good thing that, you know, you're, you're a minority. You're like, you know, you've got that going for you. And I'm like, Oh God, I know. That's And it's wild. Cause I felt like, okay, so here's a seat, but uh, don't get too comfortable with it. Is, yeah. Yeah. I, that's what that it was, means. Right. That's, that's exactly people what like Tina and like in, in Betty Davis and polystyrene and people that like were fighting in that way. And they made, really impacting, you know, relevant, uh, progressive, um, influential stuff. And then for them to still kind of either have to take, uh, you know, just kind of like throw their hands up and say, I can't do this anymore. Walk away, which, you know, like in Betty Davis's case, she did that. And it seems like with, with some of Tina's story, that's kind of a little bit what happened too. There was just this point where it's, I'm not going to subject myself to this anymore, you know, and I'm walking away on my terms. But mm. the art that they made, the work that they put in is still there. And that should still be respected and passed down and celebrated. And what makes me mad is that the culture says, okay, they're gone now. Throw that away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. Oh, gosh, I just, I just love, that's exactly how I feel too, Danny. Absolutely. Just, it's just the, I, that then like we were talking earlier about band dynamics and how those things can be messy and we can't see that, but just like you said, respect the work and the legacy of the work. And that's really our job really as artists is to just create products that can last the time ages. And this is us sitting here, you know, 40 years, 50 years later, and completely enamored by the by just the work itself. And now we want to know more. And yeah. it feels personal. It feels personal that and that there are so many of these icons that had access to this to this work and had the ability to be inspired by this work in ways that brought them to heights of celebrity and fame. And then I'm just me. I'm just me, Shayna, lonely little black girl at a punk show, with nobody to talk to and nobody to looks like me. It's, trying to feel like I should be there mm-hmm. because I like the, because I like the record. And like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking you guys could have shown me that there was me before. And mm-hmm. I, that would have changed my whole life. Exactly. Taking the chip right matters. out of my shoulder. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't need to have that extra chip. And you know what? But it, you know what? But thank you. Cause now it's fire. So, yeah. Right. And you know what? To add on to that, Shana, it's like we were all that person at a punk rock show. And you know, I feel like sometimes us, that yeah. is we, we were, we weren't, all there because we were told we shouldn't be there and we shouldn't be making this kind of music. So you know where we all were? Because now we're all meeting each other. We were all at home wishing that we would feel comfortable there. There's mm-hmm. more than enough of us that could oh, yeah. take over, <laughs> that could be in the audience at these shows. But when you're told, you know, now this is a white thing or what are you doing here? Or, oh man, mm-hmm. that's, that's, you're like the whitest black person I've ever met. Yeah. You know, right. oh, you, don't, you don't, yeah. go you don't go to the show. You get punished. Yeah, you get punished. Exactly. Yeah. Rock music. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Rock music. And we get punished by the oh, yeah. black community, yep. by non-bipolar communities, by yep. everybody punishes us for liking this exactly. stuff. Exactly. But then they put us on these little pedestals and say, oh, saying this is great. But just like Danny said, it's that sluts, that second hand where it's like get enjoy your time because you won't be here for a while. You yeah. know, and that's that same message. It's so upsetting. White kid, like, I mean, to be frank, it's like white kids, you know, like are in bands at 17 in high school. And that's like, and that's just part of the thing they do. Like for me, yeah. I didn't feel like I was allowed to be in a Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. I remember yeah. just being so sad one day coming home from school with the guitar because I had just been told when I got on the bus that black people don't play guitar. And I was just like, and I was so embarrassed that I had it. I was so embarrassed. I was like, Oh, well maybe I shouldn't have this. And I was so discouraged and I easily could have just put it down and not have done it. But it was like, no, like I I actually really want to do this. And you know, it wasn't until after high school when I, cause in high school I was in the classic rock and I started going backwards from there. And that's heavily influenced uh, by uh, black blues musicians and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Shane, I really appreciate you saying, you know, mentioning about us, like, uh, refusing to compete, you know, and that's something, and I, I thank you so much for, for putting my name in that. Like, uh, that's a goal of mine. So I'm not going to cry on Sound and Vision. It's fine. You're going to cry. No, I'm not. But it's <laughs> that's a goal of mine. And thank you for, for saying that. Like this is pioneering for kids that are growing up now that are looking at, looking up at like Eva, Shana, Nicole, like looking and seeing, oh, 
I can sing rock music if I want. I can, you know, and, and they'll do that younger. They'll do it at 14. They'll like, they, they won't have people convincing them that guitar isn't for black people, you know, or for girls mm. or for queer people yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know? And that's, I think the coolest thing about the way that we can connect to people now online and social media is people can see themselves reflected even just in us, but like, you know, and, and, and others, but like, I think if that ends up being the impact, that would be a huge, like pushing the needle in a new yeah. direction. Yeah. And before I wrap this up, I just want to say to any black rocker listening that we can all coexist. There doesn't need to be one black person representing us all. If anything, put yourself Ooh. out there so we can find you and yes, listen to you please, and know that we're do. trying to change the narrative and that we're not going to have one person be a quote unquote mascot of all black rockers because we're all mm -hmm. individuals as well. We've lived different lives. The thing we have in common is black skin, but I, we live different lives. I feel like they did that with Jimi Hendrix. They just mm. made him the mascot, you know. Yeah. Black rock yeah. If it's electric guitar, <laughs> if it's electric guitar, it's Hendrix. If it's acoustic, it's Tracy Chapman. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's so true. <laughs> I know we're going to do this again. Not, I think we're going to do, I know we're going to do this again. <laughs> and I've been talking with Shayna Shepard of Barracks, uh, Danny Denial, of uh, Dark Smith, and Nicole Swims of Blackens. And uh, we've been talking about the group Bam Bam, fronted by the legendary Tina Bell, formed in Seattle in the early 80s, the original grunge folks. And uh, thank you guys so much for being on the show and talking with me about this. And I know once we're off the air, we're just we're going to continue these conversations because this is what we do. This is what we talk about together. We have each other for this. So thanks, you guys. And I love you. <laughs> love, you. Love, you love you, Eva. <laughs> love you, Eva. You're the greatest. <laughs> That was Sun and Vision. Thanks so much to Eva Walker and Larry Mizell Jr. for helping tell the story of Tina Bell and Bam Bam. Thanks also to KEXP for giving us a platform to share these types of stories with you. Now, KEXP is a publicly funded radio station based here in Seattle. And publicly funded means the majority of our operating budget comes from listeners. Our spring fund drive is happening from March 5th to March 12th, where we ask people to support the station. And so I am asking you now to please consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support Sound & Vision. You can do that at kexp.org sound. Again, that is kexp.org sound. And while you're at it, please subscribe, rate, interview this podcast, and share this episode or a favorite interview or story you have heard from this podcast with a friend. But most of all, Thanks for listening.